This Week in Startups is brought to you by Masterworks, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. Twist listeners can skip the 17,000 person waitlist by going to masterworks.io and using promo code TWIST. Rippling. Rippling helps thousands of fast-growing startups automate their HR and IT, from their team's payroll and benefits to devices and apps. See how at rippling.com slash twist. And LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. And today on the program, a startup you may have heard of. It's called Twitter. And now that we're in our second decade, we're having all these amazing startups that were on the podcast in the early days when they were nascent companies and Ev Williams and Jack had started along with Biz. Twitter, uh, well, now Twitter is at scale, hundreds of millions of users. And we noticed something in the last six months, 12 months, something started percolating over at Twitter. The product velocity at Twitter accelerated massively. Now, this is a company that's always been very cautious to protect the core experience in Twitter. You didn't see Twitter change all that much. And that was for good reason. It worked. And you had very, very noisy customers like myself (laughs) who've been on the platform for 10 years, and they don't want certain things to change. Well, uh, things have started to change, and I think in an incredibly positive direction. And uh, dare I say, Twitter has gotten its groove back. Kayvon Bakepore is a large reason for that. He is the head of product, and he's on the program today. Thanks for joining us, Kayvon. Thanks for having me, Jason. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Now, you came to Twitter via an acquisition of Periscope, and if my memory serves me correctly, they bought the company, which was pretty hot in beta, before you even launched, and it was just around the time that they had also acquired Vine, if I remember correctly. Vine was at least a year prior. Um, yeah, probably a couple of years prior. Because I remember when we were going through the early diligence conversations with with Twitter, I actually um, got introduced to the Vine founders and kind of asked them, "So, what's it yeah. like to work at Twitter?" Um, so, yeah, they they were at the company for at least a year or so, but. Um, yeah, we were in beta. Um, we got acquired, you know, by the time we got the deal done, it was in January, we kind of kept it under wraps because we wanted to get ready for launch and not have a bunch of public pressure around the acquisition having happened. Um, so we ended up launching in, in March of that year. Now, you heard my little intro there. Am I correct that the culture of Twitter is to be, um, if I'm being generous, methodical, maybe a cynical person would say too conservative? in terms of changing the core product. And what changed in the last couple of years? Because we started to see this rapid acceleration in the vision. Was that you? Was that Jack? Was that some function of watching other people take your social graph and just rebuild products based on the Twitter social graph? What, what's happening over there? Did they change the coffee? <laughs> We've gone through a few evolutions of the coffee. Um, yeah. I I think it is a fair assessment to say that for many years, um, people who were using Twitter were used to seeing not much evolution of the product. Uh, It was a pretty common source of criticism and frustration from our from our customers. And so I think I think that's a very fair assessment. I I wouldn't there are certainly parts of Twitter's culture that are methodical and and very intentionally are, are methodical. So some some of it is some of it was intentional. Some of it was, I think, the absence of conviction, like enduring consistent conviction around a strategy that didn't change like every mm. year. Because if you have a revolving door of strategy, it's really hard to to take big swings. Um, and there was, I think, a little bit of of both. And here's what I mean by that: on the revolving door thing, one like th- there was a lot of churn at the leadership yeah. levels of, of Twitter, in particular, the, the product role, like I, you know, there were, I think 12 heads of product in 12 years, which is kind of crazy, you know, what what happens, or at least my observation, of what happens when there's that much churn is the organization tries to build calluses around the fact that there's like instability in product strategy, and you tend ah. to then have an organization that works on features that are not likely to get killed through those strategy changes. So that's, I think, one, that's like my interpretation of 
Yeah, I think I mean, it was... one of the things that was happening was uh, there's a lot of focus on like incremental things um, because they were less speculative, and you know people don't want to work on things that don't don't ship, which is very understandable. The second thing that I think was going on was a very intentional strategy at the time. Roughly when I joined the company, actually, one of the big strategic efforts at the time was what we called refine the core. And what that mm. meant was, let's focus on doing as few things as possible and do those few things really well. And one of those things was refining the core product experience. And mm. really, like a couple of material things happened during that time period. This is like the 2013 to 14, 15 timeframe. That's when we moved from a reverse chronological timeline to a ranked timeline and really focused on improving our ability to recommend content to people. Um, now, a couple of things to say about that phase. One, you know, if you focus on refining the core for a long period of time, customers will maybe see less swings, less less different sort of product experiments that, that you might sort of see other sort of startups or bigger companies taking bigger swings on. Um, and that I think contributed maybe to some of the, the rhetoric around Twitter being, um, you know, not taking a lot of swings. To be honest, like I at the time was was pretty frustrated as well, kind of like being at the company, being focused on Periscope and sort of wondering why we weren't taking big swings. That being said, what I have an appreciation for now that I don't think I did then was that period of time where for two years we focused on refining the core, that focus is what actually returned the company to user growth. Like building ah. the rank timeline, building sophistication around machine learning to be able to recommend content to people, which is like fundamentally people come to Twitter to stay informed about their interests. If we're not good at recommending content, we're nowhere. And that that period of time, even though it didn't spark a bunch of divergent um, bets that would manifest in crazy new product experiences, we ended up really improving the nuts and bolts and the bread and butter of Twitter. And that brought us to kind of where we are now, which is like every quarter consistently, we've grown Twitter in terms of our GAU, double digits year over year. Like, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround from essentially having been flat. Um, and so that, uh, I share all that context because, yes, there was a period of time where the product wasn't really evolving at the surface level, but it was absolutely being evolved underneath the hood. And frankly, there that- There was product debt, right? I mean, it, there was either, you could call it technical or maybe product debt would be more accurate here in that people were used to on Instagram or Facebook or other services, you open it up and it gives you the most interesting things. An algorithm looks through everything and says, hey, since you've been gone, here's what's most interesting. And you know, when you open Twitter, you guys do a heck of a job showing me the most relevant, interesting tweets, and that creates water cooler moments, and it makes you want to open the app more. Are you concerned about your portfolio's performance in the near future? Well, JP Morgan, BlackRock, and other big banks are projecting public equity returns of just 3 to 5% over the next five years. Analysts at Bank of America urged investors to consider real assets as part of an inflation strategy for government spending. So where are the majority of players putting their money? Endowments for Yale, Harvard, and other top asset managers are looking into alternative assets. According to Masterworks Research, endowments over $1 billion are investing 55% more in alternatives on average. And these fund managers have produced the best returns for decades. If you're looking for an interesting alternative asset class that's uncorrelated with the stock market, it's blue chip art. Masterworks.io is disrupting a centuries-old asset class by selling shares in multi-million dollar paintings by artists like Banksy, Picasso, and Warhol. You may have heard of a couple of those. According to Masterworks, contemporary art has appreciated 14% annually from 1995 to 2020, outperforming other real assets like real estate and gold. So, Here's your call to action. You can now allocate a portion of your portfolio to one of the best performing asset classes over the past 25 years with masterworks.io. Get started at masterworks.io and use the code TWIST to skip their 30,000 person waiting list. See important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. And we have the founder of Masterworks on the podcast and he's a really brilliant guy. And it's a fascinating, fascinating world. And I think it's a very cool idea. Okay, let's get back to this amazing pod. The top Twitter users, how addicted are they? How often does, uh, let's call it the top 20% of users use the the product? I know for people like myself, or maybe you watch Elon Musk using it just from his public usage of it. There are people who are, you know, in impor important positions of power, journalists, CEOs, politicians who are on it seemingly throughout the day. 
what do those top 20% look like the wells in your system? And do you have a name for them internally? Well, we have we have um, sort of frameworks that we use to classify customers based on their behavior. For example, we look at um, the behavior of what we call composers, like people who tend to create content very differently. Yes. They sort of had different behaviors than folks who are heavy content consumers. They spend a lot of mm. time on the service, but they're they're not so much active on the content production side. They're more um, consumers. And so that's sort of one framework we use. And then we sort of classify customers on the basis of how active are they. Um, mm. And those are useful when you're trying to understand, like, how is a product feature working? Because sometimes it works very differently amongst different cohorts. Um, ah. Yeah, I mean, every company has sort of different different frameworks like that. You know, certainly when you're at scale looking at how product experiences are working, it's it's helpful to kind of stratify based on those dimensions. So those creators who are constantly creating content, um, Yashir comes to mind, just somebody who during the Trump era, you know, just seems to be on like a full time job almost. Th those users are super important. And it seems to me that a lot of your focus as the product officer is around servicing, I'll call them um frequent creators hyper creators consistent creators something like that is that the is that your focus now is to, to to really service them or over service them or service them better than other opportunities they have in the world it's certainly one of our focuses and maybe if it's helpful i can sort of step back and give you a sense of like what are the big like strategic rocks that we're focused on because th yes please um what you're referencing is certainly one of the focus areas but um there's a few kind of strategic initiatives that we sort of disproportionately focus on as part of our strategy. Uh, the first is health. You know, it's been it's been a long focus for us um, over the last few years, because it's important if people are participating in public conversation, it's important for that conversation to be healthy. And for us, that means a couple things specifically. One, it means like conversation, like people need to feel like they they feel safe participating in the conversation. Like if you mm. feel like you're going to be abused or harassed, you're not going to want to talk on Twitter. Um, and there's a bunch of things that we know we can do to improve that from being more transparent about our rules, giving people more controls. Um, and so conversational health is one aspect. The other is, um, you know, if people don't feel like they can trust the integrity of the content they find on the platform, if it's not mm. free of misinformation, of spam, of state-sponsored activity, like they're just not going to trust what they see on Twitter. So health is a really important um, strategic focus for us and has been for, for quite some time. The other is what we call interests. Now, interests is is maybe one of the most fundamental fundamental parts of Twitter, but it's really about how do we connect people to the content, people, and communities they care about. Like one of the fundamental reasons people come to Twitter is to follow and talk about their interests. So if we can't understand what Jason is interested and if we can't kind of, if we can't understand how the people and content on the platform map to those interests, and if we can't connect those dots, we're failing in one of the basic building blocks of what Twitter needs to do. And so interest is a really critical one that actually, it's important for both creators and consumers. And if anything, like there's far more non creators than there are um, creators. And a lot of the folks who are coming to Twitter every day, you know, they might be coming to Twitter because something happened in the world, you know, whether it was uh, something in their neighborhood or um, some world event like like COVID or um, whatever it might be. And anyone who comes in the door to Twitter, they have many more interests, many more things that they're interested in beyond that thing that brought them to Twitter. We ah. need to do a really good job of understanding what those are and connecting people to those interests. So projects like topics that you see us investing in now really are part and parcel to that strategy. That's going incredibly well. And that was something that was user generated in the beginning with hashtags. But you've obviously figured out, hey, you know that I'm into the Knicks and the Warriors, somebody else might be into the Hawks and the Lakers. Just from my liking activity, who that I follow players on the team, some amount of signal is telling you show Jason more Knicks, correct? Show show Jason more Knicks and then maybe give him the option to explicitly follow the Knicks so that he yes. doesn't have to know who are all the players, who are all the mm. coaches, who are all the sports journalists that cover the Knicks, who are all the super fans yeah. that have the most interesting takes on Knicks content. So rather than, you know, we would replace the eight months you would have had to spend finding and following all those people in a previous world. And instead, mm. theoretically, you follow the Knicks topic, and we will figure all that out and just recommend the best content to you. And maybe you also find interesting people as a result of that that you then follow. What's interesting about those first two rocks that you put in the product jar there using the metaphor, the big rocks going in, 
those rocks are things that people really aren't going to see, right? The, the, the hope is that they don't have a health or security problem. So it's kind of like, you know, I, I didn't see trash on the street. It's not like you took trash out of my life. I just didn't happen to see on the street. And then, oh, yeah, you're showing more interesting stuff. But again, to our earlier conversation, it's not like it's some new feature like spaces that is explicit, like, hey, here's something new, a shiny object. Those were foundational things that have made the service grow and engagement grow. So yes and no. I think certainly in the first year and a half of our focus on health, there was a lot of under the hood stuff um, mm. that that maybe doesn't manifest to most people very clearly, but to some people it does. When you experience abuse and you report a tweet, you want to know that there's like a you know there's good procedural justice and a system that like evaluates user reports and makes action and yada yada yada. That's not user facing in the spaces sense, but it does impact customers. Over time, though, we've we've actually made sure that as a part of our health roadmap, we do build real user-facing features. Uh, examples of this are, you know, I think about a year and a half ago at this point, we we, we really started this with a feature called um, Hide Replies, which lets mm. you, if someone responds to a tweet that you posted with a reply that you just think is garbage, like maybe it doesn't mm. violate our terms of service, Twitter's not going to take action on it, but for you, you know, you were, you were posting about the next episode of the pod that's dropping and someone responds with some really annoying yeah, snarky whatever yeah, you can hide it so other people don't yeah. see and like sure we've had features like mute and block but those are local decisions we're now mm. giving people more agency around the space in which their conversations happen so features like hide replies features like conversation controls where you can start a tweet and say you know what this tweet and the conversation within it is only for the people that i follow whereas this I love other that so yeah. those are all in the spirit of um giving people more controls to have a healthier um, experience. I would say it's totally working. I have to say that your security features, uh, which unfortunately I've had to deal with, um, you know, being doxxed, you know, two or three times, I've had to report them. And what's really great is when you do a report, you get a follow up. And they say, hey, listen, this, this tweet was taken down. And I had retweeted some video. And I guess somebody reported it because it was like one of these like fail videos. And Maybe they felt like because it was a kid who failed, it might have been violence or something. I don't know why exactly got reported, but I opened my account up and it said, hey, your, your account's been suspended. And I was like, really? Well, that's weird. Because first time in 11 years, or no, 20 years almost. And I clicked it and it was like, oh, for this tweet, would you like to take this tweet down? And I was like, yeah, I'll just take it down. I didn't realize this would be offended. I don't care. And that kind of new moderation feature seems to be very elegant to me. And it, it took a while to get there, but do people or people feeling satisfied with the work you've done uh or are you seeing that because there's a lot of people who complain like oh my god people are harassing me but you know sometimes it's just people being like i think you're dumb and it's not really harassment it's more just like people saying i think you're dumb <laughs> i bring that example up because people say that to me all the time i don't get to report that one right <laughs> i think it's really it's tricky because um this is such a difficult space per for, uh, precisely for the reason you mentioned like um there's a there's a wide like health is a very wide spectrum there's 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 objectively deplorable content that is against our terms of service that is somewhat easier to take action on through automation processing etc yeah easy. then there's a right and then then there's a you know child sexual exploitation like there are things like that oh. that are not great it's like very clear yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a tremendously wide spectrum of um, gray area, which is very subjective mm. around like unwanted interactions, right? What, what yeah. you might consider unwanted is very different than what I might consider unwanted. And historically, yeah. we have not provided the nuanced controls in the product to actually solve for that. We we had to solve for it through. Is that the really your responsibility, though? I mean, just I hate to cut you off, but I kind of feel like if you're going to be in a public space. That is as vibrant as Twitter is with, you know, let's face it, a lot of intellectual people, some trolls, whatever. But like, should people's expectation be that they have to, they should be able to dictate, I want this style of conversation. Is that a bridge too far? Like maybe you're just, you know, the expectation should be, listen, it's going to be safe, but people might disagree with you and might think you're stupid. And that's just called the real world. I think at a, there's a certain point where like we cannot, um, we're not going to be able to dictate and control all of the micro interactions that people have on our platform. So I think yeah. that's kind of the point you're making, which I, I agree yeah. with that sentiment. However, we as the platform, we own and operate and build the tools and mechanics that govern mm. how people behave. And that is our responsibility. If you yeah. went to a dinner party and 
every time you went to that dinner party, it was just like a nasty experience. Yeah. You would not go back to that dinner party. Right. And we would like to have a platform that makes as many people feel comfortable talking as possible. Fundamentally, we believe yeah. the more people having public conversation, the better. Like that's good for the world. Um, sure. So I think as we build new modalities like audio, as we build new controls, as we build new use cases like conversation controls that let you have like fireside chats that you couldn't have before um, without like people yelling in your ear, these just enable more types and more analogs of conversation that we already have in the real world. Like in the real world, it's not like every form of human discourse is J Jason going to a public square, standing on a stool and yelling. Like that's no. kind of what tweeting can feel like sometimes. Sure. But with these new analogs, be it conversation controls and spaces and, um, you know, fleets and DMs, like these are all sort of different permutations of how people can talk, some in public, some in semi-public, um, some in private. Um, it sort of creates a more fluid spectrum of how people can talk in public. Um, and yeah, that will- It's also one key to block somebody and they're out of your life forever. This new world of remote work is here to stay. So are all of the HR and IT headaches. Like how do you register your startup with dozens of state tax agencies or comply with the gazillion different labor laws? How about managing remote employees' computers? Another pain point. Rippling, which I use for my fully remote team at Inside, can answer those questions. They make it super easy to manage all of your local and remote employees and contractors, whether they work from your HQ or Timbuktu. When you hire people in new states, Rippling can automatically register your startup with each state tax agency and keep you compliant with all the different local labor laws. You know, the stuff that no one likes dealing with. From there, Rippling lets you onboard new hires in literally 90 seconds. You can instantly set up payroll, benefits, and apps like Slack and GitHub. So you don't forget to do that, <laughs> which I've had happen. You can even ship them a work laptop with all the software and security they need. My team at Insight loves Rippling because it takes a lot of complexity off of our plate. So my team can focus on the more important stuff like creating our great newsletters and our online events. And now thanks to Rippling's new PEO option, you know about that personal employer organization, your employees can likely access better Fortune 500 level benefits for less than other platforms. So if you're looking for an easier way to run your startup remotely, or just get a better way to manage your HR and IT, visit rippling.com slash twist. That's R-I-P-P-L-I-N-G.com slash T-W-I-S-T. Great company. And it saves us time. Right? Notice blocking has become much more sophisticated. When you're blocking somebody now, you can't even search for their name and all kinds of stuff because i know like people would i would block somebody but then they would still see my stuff i know they can get a burner account and i'm a public figure so i don't really have too many expectations but blocking is super effective right i mean and so is muting people both of these things work and there's also the i guess they call it i don't know if you have an internal name for this but it's sort of like the soft block which is you block somebody i don't know if you know about this yeah. you block somebody and then you unblock them yeah so that turns off them following you so they don't know they just think they forgot to follow you yeah. And I keep I keep saying, like, Chamath, why do you I was following you? Why do you keep soft blocking? <laughs> Chamath doesn't do it to me. What do you call that internally when somebody does that? Like you block somebody in order to get them to unfollow you and then you unblock them. I don't know if you just infected me or incepted me with the term soft block, but we may call it that. But we 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 observe this behavior. And this is actually like one of the interesting things that we try and do as part of our product development process is look at all the ways people are hacking the product to try and get it to do what they want and make mm. that easier. And this is exactly yeah. one of them. Like what people fundamentally are trying to do is force and unfollow. Like we could make that easier for folks so that they don't have yeah. to discover that they have to block and then unblock. And then it creates this mystery around like, is there a bug? <laughs> Did Twitter screw something up? Um, so I think that's, um, those are all, that's like one very helpful lens through which we look at, um, you know, what we built. The system has existed for a very long period of time. When it started, people looked at Twitter as a chat room. And so, you know, or kind of like being in a bar. In other words, people were a little loosey-goosey, maybe not as buttoned up as they should be. And we saw many people's careers, you know, people get canceled by something they said 10 years ago. Um, you know, obviously, that must not feel great for, for you at Twitter or for the team there. And I basically went and I just deleted my entire Twitter archive. I used a third-party tool like Tweet Delete to delete everything. I, now, I backed it up for myself. But I was like, you know what? I don't even remember what arguments I was having, you know, 12 years ago. 
it's just a liability. I'll just back it all up and delete it. But I really wanted to archive it. Just like Instagram now, you can, I started turning off all my Instagram photos because I got creepy people. And I was like, let me just archive these, right? So, have you thought about a way instead of forcing me to delete my archive, I could just say anything over a year old, I just want archive. Or is that kind of tool kind of antithetical to the public discourse? And how would you go think about making a decision like that? Certainly, it must have come up in discussion. I'm I'm smiling and this is super creepy because we literally had a product review on this concept today. Um, what? So I'm like freaked out that you're actually in our internal systems, Jason. Um, but well, I'm a power user, obviously. I mean, <laughs> you you escalated from power user to you have LDAP access now. Um, <laughs> so uh, is it antithetical? No, not at all. Like this is something yeah. that we we know through the developer ecosystem. We know from customer feedback that um, you know sometimes you don't want something you said eight years ago to remain on the public record and searchable. Um, and we don't make that particularly easy right now. A lot of our customers find and use these third-party tools. Some of them are great. Some of them are a little overzealous with their API privileges and are, are a little yes, bit abusive. Yes, they can get and you so, banned. You got to be careful. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that absolutely we're, we're thinking of. And this product review I mentioned today was exploring such a concept that allows you to this essentially- This could be part of the Twitter Blue paid product. I've always felt that there should be a pro product and if you're a professional user, and you've been with the platform for five or 10 years, why not pay $10 a month? Talk to me a little bit about how you think about users paying for the platform and, and that whole discussion. What would be in a premium product if you did launch one? Or what are people asking for? So let's, let's take all those questions one by one. So in terms of like, how do yeah. we think about it? Like, I, I, I think the notion of having a um, direct relationship um, with our customers, where they only pay us if we're delivering valuable add-on features that don't exist in the product today, I think is great. I think that's a really important diverse source of revenue that we need to have and frankly creates good incentive for us to build features for a set of power users that would be interested in lots of capabilities that we don't have right now. And th those features may not attract hundreds of millions of users, but they do attract a subset of users that are power Certainly users millions. Certainly millions. I believe so. Um, and so- yeah. You know, the rumors are true. We are not only super interested in this, like this is a, this is a big priority for the company and um, there's a team working on this and we're going to um, do a first launch um, limited to um, a couple markets, a couple geographies, because we want to test and learn and make sure we're, mm. we're getting this right. Um, but tomorrow in, uh, in Australia and Canada, we're going to have the first launch of Twitter Blue be available for customers and they'll be able to pay Twitter to access our first bundle of features. And that's just a starting point. Like we will be adding features and capabilities constantly. What will be in the first feature set? So in the first feature set, you'll have a few things. Um, you'll be able to, and I'll, I'll sort of give you the list first and we can talk about the sort of sure. the why behind them. Uh, and then I'd love your feedback on what else we should add. Sure. Um, you'll be able to uh, manage bookmarks. So as you know, you know we mm -hmm. have bookmarks feature today, but it's one of, the, one of the most common, probably like next to edit tweets, the second most requested feature I hear about, well, edit tweets, verify me in reverse order, and then um, let me manage my bookmarks. Um, mm. So a lot of people are using bookmarks, but they want to be able to create folders, they want to be able to search them, they want to be able to organize all the great content they see on Twitter, rather than have this flat list. Um, so managing bookmarks will be in, in Twitter blue, we'll improve that over time, hopefully build build search. But for now, it's just creating folders and being able to add, you know, bookmark tweets into those specific collections. Would um, you be able to make those shareable too? Like, would you be able to? Sh would I be able to share my bookmarks eventually? N not in this, not in this first version. But okay. that's definitely like there's lots of interesting directions we can take sure. this, and I think multiplayer mode and opening up an API around this, I think will uh, have lots of awesome things happen with the developer ecosystem. Um, but starting starting um, with love just that managing bookmarks, you'll be able to undo tweets, and what that means is similar to Gmail um, when you post a tweet. Um, we queue it up on the back end, but we give you a period of time to decide to uh, undo it if you notice mm. a spelling mistake or, or, or if you want to undo it for any number of reasons. And we sort of, you know, take you back to the tweet composer where you can, where you can change the tweet. This is something is that, that 10 um, seconds, 15 seconds. What is the countdown clock? I believe it's 10 seconds right now, but we're, we're going to make it modifiable. Um, so oh, that, you know, wow. some, some people might want to change, you know, change that. Yes. What would be good is too, is to have with that countdown clock, the undo is to also have approval. So s one user account writes it, another account has approval on it. So if you know, it was the corporate account for 
you know, stakeums, one person could write it in the comms department and the CFO could approve it, you know, like that sort of workflow. Yeah, I think there's a whole there's a whole interesting thread there around businesses and creating um, specific features for businesses that we mm-hmm. um, we think is an interesting exploration as well. Th- this is very much starting with like an end user, like our features for end users. Got it. So we got bookmarks, we got the undo. Bookmarks, undo, um, a feature called reader mode, which is um, really, really awesome. Uh, it's very simple, but um, you ever run into a long thread on Twitter that has sure. 15, 20 tweets and um, it's it's just I've a long- written them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so reader mode lets you, um, when, you're, when you happen upon one of these threads, you tap a button and we take you to a really sort of elegant- um, reading only experience where we take away all the engagements, a lot of the other fluff outside uh, of the content, beautiful. and then we sort of make it more of a long form reading experience. Um, so you can focus on the content. Nice. And then um, in addition to that, we have a bunch of small um, customization perks. So you can change the color of some of the sort of common color elements in the app to make that make it more sort of thematically customized, you can change your app icon. So these are like small little personalization things that feel little, but having used them for for um, a few months now, it's actually quite delightful. Yeah. And all the features that I mentioned to you, we've heard from customers through research are just really like uh, um, different cohorts of customers really care about these things. Um, and we thought they'd be a really good sort of bundle to put together to start with and use it as a foundation upon which we'll we'll build. We've got a bunch of other really exciting things that um, we're not quite ready to talk about, mm. but that you'll see us add to the subscription and make it um, more and more compelling to customers. I have the most time. killer one. Most killer one. Tell me. It's a little controversial, but everybody who is a power user are using third parties to do this anyway, which is knowing when somebody unfollows you. Uh, or knowing if somebody blocks you. Now, knowing mm-hmm. if somebody blocks you opens up a little bit of a security can of worms because there might be a reason they're blocking you. And that when you do block somebody, everybody knows that's a little bit of an agitating moment for the blockee and they might act out. So you have to be a little cautious with that one. But just knowing who unfollowed me and uh, when would let me know and give me a feedback loop to maybe I'm tweeting too much. Maybe I should stop tweeting about michael bloomberg and how i want him as president instead of bernie sanders which i i think i lost an advertiser on the podcast because of uh i'm not kidding somebody got upset i don't know if they canceled their ad buy or not but they were upset that i was pro bernie not pro bernie and i was pro bloomberg i do think knowing who unfollowed you and giving some basic metrics i subscribe to some service that's five or ten bucks a month that just sends me a daily report of my top tweets what the metrics were and you know, it's very elegant and simple. I'll forward it to you after the show. Um, and some sort of daily report of my metrics, I think would be killer because, you know, is it metrics or analytics.twitter.com? And is that available to everybody or only verified accounts? There are um, a subset of our, so all of our customers have access to a subset of analytics, like at the tweet level. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, a more uh, sort of in-depth product um, that is part of our media studio suite um, and also ah, that's part of why our, I have it. Yeah. And part of our advertiser dashboards as well that that not all customers have access to. Um, but I think that thematically what you're saying is spot on. Like we know yeah. that another entire area uh, where we can deliver great value and also where, where there's willingness for customers to pay because they're already paying third party tools is in the analytics space. And just yeah. sort of lasering in on zeroing in on what are the specific analytics that p- that people would be interested in, whether it's on follows or um, some of the other dynamics around what which what what, what if my content is performing well? Mm-hmm. You know, how many people are visiting my profile or who? You know, there's a lot there that I think who's other- visiting your profile, like that LinkedIn one. I feel like that one's a little privacy iffy because I'm not sure that people know exactly that they're. I know that they're creeping on my profile page. So I'm a little bit iffy on that one. But I do like the idea of, hey, you got a lot of engagement on this one, not just because it's a great way for you to make money through the Twitter Blue program, but also make me a better tweeter, right? Make me a better tweeter. Hey, this one got a lot of engagement. Hey, this one was ratioed. Here's what that means. Here, this one, you know, just those little kind of updates on I did something right and look what's going well here uh, and the metrics uh, and giving me encouragement or something. It's just such a huge win uh, for me. I do think DMs is another area where I am like a power DM user and I have groups on there, but the search doesn't work great and the product hasn't changed all that much. How do you think about DM? Because, man, DMs are, 
uh, given the people who are on Twitter, I, I don't want to say I don't want to introduce in mail like LinkedIn has. But I don't not want to introduce that I have open DMs, other people don't a DM request feature where I could DM somebody who doesn't follow me and I could do it 10 times a month if I had a premium account, and you had my credit card and you knew who I was, it seems like it wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, I think, um, first of all, like our DMs feature um, has a lot of room to grow. Um, yeah. For a long time, DMs were actually on maintenance mode, uh, which is yeah. kind of one of the reasons why we're, we are where we are playing catch up. Mm. And so, you know, you asked me how, how we think about DMs, like we are investing in getting DMs to a better place on a couple dimensions. One, adding desperately requested features, like you mentioned, search is busted, search has been busted for a long time. We actually, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen in the last couple of weeks, we actually launched to production, um, an improved search feature for searching conversation groups, like, like ah. the person's name or the group's name. It's not, it's no lot. It used to be just cached on your iPhone or your Android, like whatever yeah. the last 30 conversations were, which makes it impossible to go search for, you know, uh, let's see. And, last year's, you yeah, know, you, thread you last from time, Yeah. Yeah. Or last time you DM Chamath was like two years ago because he ghosted you and you were trying to like if find only. that. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, we're, we've been working on um, getting our, you know, solving a bunch of those features and getting to a, um, a better place there while also kind of renovating our infrastructure. Mm. which fundamentally what uh, talk about tech debt this was an area where we had a lot of tech debt where we found it difficult to make fast progress and first had to go quite slow to be able to go fast um, so we're not completely out of the woods there on that but we're we're working on it marketing budgets don't grow on trees right now linkedin is going to give you a hundred dollar credit towards your first ad campaign on linkedin this is very important because over 78 percent of b2b marketers rate linkedin as the most effective social media platform for reaching objectives because there are over 62 million decision makers on linkedin and they mean business of course there's like a well over 700 million members on linkedin but Decision makers are there too. So while they're on LinkedIn, hiring management teams are updating their corporate profile pages, which is super important these days. They're going to see your advertising. Imagine you're about to launch a marketing campaign. Everything is going according to plan, except for the thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure that the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? Context is critical. The answer is LinkedIn. When you market on LinkedIn, you reach people who are ready to do business. They're in the right mindset. This is critical. They have tools for brand building and lead generation. You can target professionals down to their job title and the company name and location. You want CFOs, you want CTOs, you want COOs. Yeah, you know your product. And that's why LinkedIn is so special because you can target by geo and title, company, sector, all that good stuff. You can engage folks you already know based on previous visits to your site or other outreach. So do business where business is done and get a hundy and $100 ad credit towards your first LinkedIn campaign, linkedin.com slash this week in startups. That's linkedin.com slash this week in startups for the hundy. Type those letters, get that hundy terms and conditions apply because they're giving you the hundy. I got another one that, see, I really think this, this pro account, Twitter Blue, is one step. I think Twitter Blue corporate uh, for $500 a month uh, would be the real winner. Uh, in I used a company called Social Rank back in the day, which had a very interesting feature. I don't know if you remember Social Rank. I remember the name. New I couldn't yeah, tell you. Yeah, it was a New York do. company that did all kinds of an analysis over your different social graphs. The one killer feature they had was I could organize anybody in my Twitter following that had the word venture capital, angel, whatever. So now out of 400,000 people, I have 25,000 who have explicitly in their bio, they're a venture capitalist, a startup founder, whatever. I then could DM that group. So in, in other words, I could use them almost like a mailing list and I could DM them, hey, I'm in New York. And so I did all this work where I would say, give me everybody in New York when I did my book thing and I invited everybody in New York to come to a, a reading of my book and a, a lunch with me. It was so effective, but I think technically maybe in the gray area, sending a mass DM or a, even a semi-mass DM. Uh, I, you, you don't allow companies you don't allow third parties to send DMs to more than 100 people or something? Is there some sort of rule around that? The way I would frame it is I, we see very few legitimate use cases for those tools, and we see far more often that there are mm. um, sort of nefarious use cases there. Mm. I think the, you know, your 
broader point around the in-mail concept and really being able to not just improve DMs, but but build more sort of com- commercial intent or capabilities that uh, businesses or people might find useful is super interesting. And uh, we're very much in the early stages of, of Twitter Blue, obviously, but the intersection of Twitter Blue and how uh, a canvas like DMs could could overlap is is really interesting. And what excites me about Twitter Blue is it very much is a canvas around which we are like going to build rapidly and, um, you know, Fun. making a long and big bet here that I think can take lots of different forms. And and we're also, um, you know, a lot of our some of our acquisitions have been motivated by by this as well. Like you mentioned scroll early on, like scroll I was is an a- full disclosure. I'm an angel investor in scroll. So oh, awesome. You. That's great. Um, yes, yeah, so you know, the product very well. But um, we see it as being a really awesome complement to a Twitter because so many people are discovering uh, long form articles, um, whether they're newsletters or whether they're articles through typical publishers they might find on the internet, they're they're happening upon them through Twitter. We send a lot of traffic to um, you know to publisher websites and giving people a clean, awesome, beautiful reading experience that is fast loading, free of ads. We think will a feel great for customers and b we actually think will help put money in the pockets of publishers to a higher degree than how much they would have been able to make from advertising from those same customers. And so putting that as a, a feature amongst the broader bundle within. Um, within our subscription, um, yeah, we're we're super excited about. And so, for people who didn't know, Scroll allowed you um, through a collection of pretty highly well-known um, uh, publications pay as you go to read articles, essentially. And so, imagine if you will, you're on Twitter and you get to that Atlantic story or the Wall Street Journal. You don't need a subscription to Atlantic, but you do want to read that one story. What do you do? Well, if you could use a little bit of your Twitter blue credits to read it. Or and then Twitter could pay a penny or five cents to the person who published it. That's more than they make per CPM on the article. Well, so there's there's actually a couple couple different dimensions here. There's there's pay as you go and sort of paywalled content, which we're mm-hmm. actually not tackling quite yet. Got it. Um, but I think is super interesting over time. So that's one dimension. The other dimension is. Um, giving people not getting behind the paywall, but taking existing non paywalled publisher content, like an article, yeah, removing ads, making the page load really fast. And knowing that as a as a Twitter user, when you happen upon this publisher's website and read this article, uh, by Mm. virtue of being a Twitter blue or, or, you know, a a subscriber to Twitter, um, your attention will end up getting that publisher paid. Um, by virtue of like a subset of our subscription pool, um, will go towards paying out publishers whose content is read. This is fantastic. I mean, just to, to even open up the aperture of what you're doing here, for you to be able to allow publishers to make more money could totally revitalize publishing and really push people towards a third way. You have subscribe, which is a blunt tool once a year, a hundred to $500. You have ads, which is uh, just brutal and carries with it all kinds of link baiting and bad second and third order effects. And this third way of, hey, you know, you pay Twitter 100 bucks a year, and Twitter keeps 10% of that or 5% of whatever in a pool. And people who come upon these articles will, will, will splashy cashy give a little money to everybody whose articles are shown. It really is, I think it's going to bend journalism to, uh, you know, hey, how high quality can I make this story as opposed to how link baby can I make it? Yeah, we're we're really excited that our like we have a number of different aspects of our strategy that I think will are building this this interesting multifaceted ecosystem where, like you said, there are some creators or publishers that you may want to directly um, subscribe to, and features like Super Follows will help you do that. Whether mm-hmm. these content creators are publishing long form newsletters or whether they're you know, posting tweet storms, or whether they're just, you know, like Yashar, um, who you mentioned earlier, you've got a thing for the Iranians, um, another Iranian <laughs> there. Um, yeah, I didn't know he's Iranian. <laughs> Yashar Ali, yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, like direct subscriptions to your to, to folks who you want to be a really major and recurring patron of, um, I think is one clear, viable, well understood in the ecosystem mechanic, um, mm-hmm. among many others where this, you know, the scroll model is another one that we think is fascinating. Um, and, you know, obviously then you have ad hoc payments, whether it's tips or, um, one-time gifts. And, um, you know, we started with a, with a baby step there with, with tip jar. Um, mm. but we think there's a whole very interesting avenue of exploration there. You know, we really do see this as an ecosystem where there's different tools for different jobs. And we're very keen to, to explore a few of these dimensions. 
So if super follows works, a person who has, let's call it 100,000 followers, converts but 3% to paying as super followers for but $3 a month, two or $3 a month each. They literally, to Kevin Kelly's 1,000 or 2,000 true fans, you know, thesis, could become sustainable as a person who tweets or interacts on Twitter for a living. Is that the goal and the rallying cry internally is to make tweeting or being involved in the Twitter ecosystem for a creator a full-time job if that's what they want? We don't necessarily frame it as full-time job, but here, here's okay. how we think of it. There's, like, there's two distinct high-level goals. Um, and, and this is like an, an interesting way of distinguishing the difference between Twitter Blue from all of the other sort of creator projects we're talking about here, like Super Follows and Ticketed Spaces and, and Tip Jar and these sorts of things. Um, the purpose of our all of our efforts around um, these creation tools is to help creators make money. Maybe mm. that's because they want to make their craft a full-time job rather than a side hustle. Maybe it's because they just want to be rewarded for their work. Maybe they have grand ambitions of creating a business and you know they just want to be able to be directly supported from their audience. Like th that, there's a whole spectrum of of whys there around why creators you know conduct their craft and, and do what they do. Our focus and our goal is how do we maximize the amount of money that people can make on the platform? The goal isn't for Twitter to make money. In fact, we may forego taking taking substantial cuts in a bunch of these product um, efforts because our goal actually is not to maximize revenue. Our goal is to put as much money in the pockets of customers. And frankly, ultimately, like we believe that the measure of success here is that we're driving more conversation on Twitter. That's that's the goal. Mm. And helping creators, because a certain subset of our customers are motivated by um, being able to make money, and we have not historically given them adequate tools to do that. Um, so that's the goal, helping creators make money. Separate from that, we have projects like Twitter Blue, where the goal is like, we believe Twitter can make money from a, a diverse source of revenue. And that source of revenue is being directly supported by our customers to build mm. features and functionality that provide extra value to them. Um, and so that, so they both, both of these umbrellas of work happen to involve accepting payments, but they're actually motivated by very different things. Yeah, will, cri will cryptocurrency uh, make its way into this? I mean, I know Jack is a big fan, obviously. I, I'm not sure how you feel about it. Um, but will, would we see a Twitter coin at some point? Certainly, certainly somebody in the company said, like, we should just make our own cryptocurrency. <laughs> uh, which, you know, on top of having to fix DMs and lists and everything else and technical debt and you know, launch a bunch of new products. Sure, we could create our own cryptocurrency too, but that's a whole nother, uh, you know, unit that would have to put 500 people on. So um, have you have you thought about that? Does that add anything to the party? You know, letting people put Bitcoin or Doge or whatever they're into into their wallets? Um, so we are absolutely thinking about cryptocurrency and, and just the blockchain generally. I think that we're still in the early stages of figuring out what, you know, a product experience would look like here. But I think that, you know, the world is changing with how the, the, what you can achieve through decentralization, the use cases you can enable through the blockchain. We're in the very beginning stages of figuring out and especially at the intersection of, um, cryptocurrency and the creator economy i think mm. there are many interesting explorations and many interesting products that already exist um, some of which are quite intersecting with our platform you see you see you know uh, products like bitcloud um that are already flirting with this today so like we're absolutely thinking about it um nothing to announce today or or yeah, yeah. In, the, in the coming weeks but um definitely something that we're we're exploring it, it would make sense in that the recycling of currency in the system could become very powerful. In other words, you know, I, I might let people super follow me, but as an investor and a podcaster, I, I don't need the money from the fans paying me directly. We had a Patreon. I always felt like I, do, I don't want the fans' money. But I, I will put up one if I could say, you know what, everything that comes to me, I'm going to put 25% towards the Smash program, 25% Girls Who Code, 25% towards this food bank, and 25% towards this school in Brooklyn. Like, if I could come up with a way to redirect my payments to other Twitter handles, my lord, that would be so much fun for me. And then you just think about that recirculation. It works so well with cryptocurrency if it's just moving around um, fluidly like that. Uh, now, this question is not about product, but it'd be remiss if I don't ask it, which is uh, Trump got a lifetime van. 
pretty obvious why. How has culture, if at all, changed inside of the company since making that stand? And like coming to work, does it change at all? What was it like during that period of time when that decision was made? I know it's not your department exactly, but I'm just curious, because uh, it's. I just heard while we were on the pod here, uh, taping this the day before you launched Twitter Space, uh, Twitter Blue, that Trump's being reinstated on another platform. You know, I would not say that our culture changed at all mm. as a result of that decision. Um, I think a lot of, you know, th th certainly... Um, it impacted some people's day jobs because uh, there's, you know, from a from a policy and enforcement standpoint, there's lots of tricky decisions to weigh there, created a lot of effort and, and work for, for folks. So I don't want to discount that, but I, I wouldn't say culture changed. At the end of the day, like, you know, we have a policy enforcement apparatus that has principles around enforcing our rules as consistently as possible, as quickly as possible. C culturally, there were no like major inflection points. Uh, it just happened to be a specific decision that um, was, was very noticeable, was very talked about, and yeah. um, was very high profile, but culture didn't change as a result. Yeah, I thought it was a very well done decision. I, I was frequently hearing people say, oh, you know, they got to throw him off the platform for years. And I was like, you can't really throw the president of the United States off the platform. But it's very clear inciting any kind of violence is, you know, against the rules. And that's a pretty severe thing. So I thought it was a reasonable uh, decision. Listen, it's been great to watch the platform evolve and the velocity. I love the fact that you're engaging with the fans on Twitter spaces, which is an extraordinary product. We don't want really to talk too much about that. But congratulations at the velocity at which that is increasing and so many great conversations are occurring. And it's really made me even more enthusiastic for my preferred social media platform, the place where I spend hours a day and just love, you know, to engage with so many people i've made so many friends on twitter over the years and I'm, I'm not just talking like i'm talking high profile people slide into my dm sometime it would never have happened i would never have met some of the most important relationships i have in my life um and some of the most interesting people if it had not been for twitter and i really do thank you and the team over there and wish you great success on this incredible second decade you're having of just really innovating and i love the fact that you're so focused on both empowering all these creators to make sustainable livings uh, while, you know, even making some money yourselves through this, you know, adding this subscription line because advertising, yeah, it's fun, but I just love to see you have a paid product. I think it's going to increase the level of uh, engagement and it, it just, it's, it's, it's time, you know, it's time for social media to ask the users who are getting value to pay for it. I didn't ask you this, that if I pay for Twitter blue, does that take ads out or is that going to be an option? How do you think about that? Not, not right now. Our huh. focus right now is um, really on the features and functionality that um, you know are are like new capabilities that we build for for power users. Yeah. We've we've definitely heard that that request before, yeah. and I think it's a it's a very sensible one. But it's not it's not something that we're I focused that on, on Hulu. right now. I don't know if you have Hulu or NBA League Pass. You can like pay extra to turn off ads if you're really like a kooky person, like the one hundred percent. All right, listen, Kayvon, great job. And uh, you, I'll see you on Twitter and see you on Spaces. And we'll see all of you next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. Right.